we need to teach young people that, that we are part of the wider web of relations, that what we do to the earth, we do to ourselves. It's affecting everyone. No matter where you are, no matter who you are, age doesn't matter. It is something that is affecting everyone right now. I think we have to put Indigenous voices at the center of climate justice work. Indigenous people have protected the earth for generation after generation. And I think it's just good to give our students all the tools to be successful and to make a change in the world. This is Michelle Lamb from Leaning In and Speaking Out, a podcast hosted by Brandon University's CARES Research Centre. This podcast is part of a special series on social justice in education, conducted by students in Gustavo Mora's class called Schools as Complex Spaces. Jackie and I would like to extend our heartfelt thanks to Gustavo, his students, and their guests, who are having crucial conversations about what it means to educate within contexts like the climate crisis, racism, addictions, and more. Thank you, and enjoy the show. Well, first off, hello and welcome to all those who are tuning in to today's episode. We hope you enjoy. I'm Maddie Pennell, and co-hosting alongside me is Lauren Rosling. Our conversation will cover climate change and how it doesn't just affect the earth, but the people living on it, better known as climate justice. We are joined here today with Dr. Alicia Farrell, who has an ongoing project that analyzes youth's response to climate change. So hello, Dr. Farrell. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm so happy to be here with all of you. We are very grateful that you can join us. And if it's all right with you, would you mind giving our listeners a little background on your research project as well as yourself? Sure. Um, I'm an associate professor in the Faculty of Education at Brandon University. And my research passions are in the area of climate justice, climate change education, and what it means to live, learn, and lead in precarious times. So I study issues um, that bring the feels to education. And there's no bigger topic to me that brings the feels uh, like climate change and climate justice does, especially after the most recent release of the IPC report that just came out on, on Monday. So um, I'm so happy to be here with all of you. And, and I have a project going on right now where I'm working with a group of wonderful youth um, between the ages of 13 and 20. And what we're looking at are the emotional dimensions of climate change and climate justice work. And those students worked with artists who are um, practicing in the area of eco arts or land-based or uh, water protection. Um, and so they worked with these amazing artists and through that work were inspired to create their own pieces. And those pieces are now uh, in the art gallery of Southwestern Manitoba in the community end of the gallery uh, in an exhibition called Before I Go to Bed Tonight, which, and the title for the exhibition comes from one of the participant quotes. So it's an exciting exhibition, but it's really challenging. And, but that's the kind of research that, um, that I'm invested in doing with young people. Well, that's really cool to see you uh, push boundaries with your students like that. That's really, really cool to see. Um, all right. Uh, so it's all right with you guys. We'll jump right into questioning. Lauren, you want to start us off? Okay. So our first question for you is, in your opinion, what is climate justice? That's a really good place to start. Um, so when I think about what that, uh, what that term means, it starts with the idea that climate justice um, and the climate, uh, sorry, that the climate crisis impacts people differently. So the impacts aren't shared equally among people. And many of the folks who are hardest hit are actually the least responsible for driving uh, climate change. And so if you are a climate justice activist, 
you're probably a person who wants to see those inequities addressed through education, which relates to you folks as becoming teachers, um, long-term mitigation strategies and, and adaptation strategies as well. Okay, awesome. So going off of that, um, what are some ways that you think we can achieve climate justice if we can at all? I think there are, I think the good news is there are lots of things that we can do as a society to, um, to, uh, to pursue climate justice. And so the biggies for me, uh, I would say we got to move right away uh, to renewable energy. The other thing we need to do as a society is hold fossil fuel um, producers and their investors, we have to make them accountable. There was this really um, this interesting report done by, it was called the Carbon Majors Report, and they determined that it's just 100 companies that are responsible for 71% of global emissions, right? So we knew, we know the folks who we have to help, uh, we, knew, we know who the folks are that we have to make more accountable. Um, I would also say another biggie is we've got to shift to uh, sustainable agricultural practices, and we have to rewild the forests, um, so restore the forests. And so those would be the big ones. Um, and as it relates to education, uh, more specifically, I think we have to put Indigenous voices at the centre of climate justice work. Um, Indigenous people have protected the Earth, 80% of the Earth's diversity, uh, biodiversity for for generation after generation, and um, and I think the other two things I would say as it uh, uh, to pursue climate um, justice um, that we need to teach young people that that we are part of the wider web of relations that what we do to the earth we do to ourselves, and so I would be a person that advocates for less anthropocentric educational education. So. I want us to understand uh, human beings not as the, not as the greatest things going, but as more equals to our more than human relatives. So, and I think that would that would shake things like curriculum and pedagogy up quite a bit if we saw ourselves, you know, as closer to um, our more than human relatives. And the other and, thing and that's that what we want. Yeah. Sorry, that's what we want, right? We want to make sure yeah. everyone's well known about that. So, yeah, yeah, and. The other thing I'd mentioned too, which relates back to that before I go to bed tonight exhibition, is I think in schools we need to develop a language of emotions related to climate change. So things like eco-anxiety, a lot of young people are feeling that right now. I was told that over and over uh, in my research project. And I think in schools, um, we've got to make some room for the messy emotions of climate change and, and help young people to deal with that. Yeah. And you know, like, even just you saying that I would have never assumed or even guessed that emotions could be affected with climate change and climate justice. Cause it's, it's not something you think about. Right. But like very, like, I'm just anxious looking outside right now, seeing all the snow we still have and it's March 2nd. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, so could you just expand just a little bit more on the teacher's role of climate justice in the classroom? Yeah, I think one of the things, um, so sort of building on this idea of making space for our students' messy emotions related to climate change, I, th I think I'd add another piece of that is that as teachers, one of the things that we can do is practice what I like to think about as sitting in the difficulty. So in my research project, the young people I spoke to, I asked them, I said, do you think we spend enough time and space in schools 
uh, talking about the climate crisis. And it was a resounding no. And so as a researcher, my curiosity was piqued and I want to crawl underneath some of those assumptions. And, and so I asked some follow-up questions. I said, well, can you tell me more about why you think that is? And one of the main themes that came out of those conversations was this idea that they, they perceived, the participants perceived that teachers don't want to have those um, messy, one, one participant called them spicy conversations in classrooms. So climate change raises a lot of complicated feelings. And so they thought that one of the reasons we might not be talking about it in school so much is because teachers were maybe worried about having conflict uh, in their classroom. So one thing I think teachers could do is practice sitting in the difficult knowledge of climate change and getting their students to practice talking about the complexity of it all. Um, and so I had an experience uh, in one of my um, classes uh, a couple terms ago where a student expressed frustration and anger that we were talking about the fossil fuel industry. And he said really powerfully in class, he said, my dad has worked on the oil rigs for many years. And so I feel this conversation is hurtful to me and my family because my dad put Cheerios on the table by working um, on the oil rigs. And so I'm hurt that we're talking about this in this way. And so I could have moved on as an instructor. I could have let that go. But because of the wonderful students in that class, we were able to sit together and to process that, right? And to, and to think about some of the feelings that were coming up and um, to do some work so we didn't get into either or thinking, right? We, were, we allowed each other to make the topic messy um, and to sort of figure our way through that together. So I think that's one thing that teachers can do because um, if young people are more practiced and skilled at sitting in the difficulty, I think they're gonna be more capable adults uh, of doing that. Um, and we have lots of examples in the world where we need more adults who can reason with each other and express things in peaceful ways. Wow, that, that's really well said. Um, just like your, your one student, my dad's also, he also works for an oil field. And we would have long, long conversations about how we don't agree with it. But it's a very succinct, uh, it's a very decent job for our family because, you know, he puts food on the table for us as well as my mom. But, you know, like that's where our main income is coming from. So you, although it's horrible for the earth, it, it also relates to how many people are going to be losing jobs out of all that. Right. Like it's it's more than just you need to turn a company down. Right. But it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. Um, yeah. And I, and I think we have to we have to honor those um, those complexities. And so. So, for example, one of the things we talked about in that, that story I shared was um, like this particular student said, well, you know, do you want all of us to lose our, our job or our families to lose their jobs? And then how would we deal with it afterwards? And so we were able to kind of crawl underneath that assumption a little bit more, too, and say and ask questions about is it either or? So governments can provide subsidies mm -hmm. to oil companies, which they like to do uh, quite a bit, um, or they can retrain folks and they can provide a living wage to people um, who are transitioning out of the fossil fuel industries, right? So there's, there are other options out there, but we can't get there with each other unless we, we are willing to get messy with it and explore it together. Yeah. And that just goes back to the old saying that nothing is impossible, right? Like we can achieve it. We just have to work towards it, you know, and it's crazy. That it's taken us this long to actually talk about it. <laughs> yeah, it's really great. I really liked all that. Um, so the next question we have was, how does climate change affect people unequally? This is another another great question. So the first thing I might start with is 
this idea that climate change amplifies existing inequities. Um, but I want to give you a few examples because that kind of at the theory or the abstract level, what does it actually mean? So let's let's get concrete about it. So if you think about older folks or people with chronic illnesses um, or disabilities, let's think about those folks in relation to what happened in BC last summer. So under the heat dome, right? So out of the 570 people who died suddenly during that heat wave in BC, 79% of them were 65 years or older, right? So it hits, it hits older folks, you know, in this, in this case, harder. Gender and age are also factors in how climate impacts people differently. So women in developing countries are often often have the job of the life-giving work of gathering uh, fuel wood and also getting water for their families. Well, what's happening, for example, in the rural part of Kenya is women are having to walk further and further and further to find um, safe water for their families uh, to use. Um, in 2014, another example, the IPC um, created a report that said, like when they looked at the flooding in Nepal, girls were twice as high, the likelihood of young girls dying was twice as high for them as it was for women. And it's the same for boys. So as teachers who care about children and children yet to come, um, we have to think about climate inju injustice in, in the way that it affects, uh, it affects young people. Um, the other thing I would say is that I think it's important to mention is that um, Indigenous, Black, and other marginalized communities in Canada and around the world, they're often living in places that are impacted by poor air quality and water contamination, as well as future climate devastation um, that will result from rising sea levels and storms and floods, etc. So um, what does this mean? Is that marginalized groups in our society have not only increased exposure to climate change events, they're also more susceptible to the events and it's harder for them to recover afterwards. And there's a million examples of that. So those are just some ways that climate change affects people unequally across the globe. So just to kind of go off that, um, I just had kind of a follow-up. How do you think that we can like protect those people in marginalized communities that are struggling with the effects of climate change? Like, is there anything we can do to help them? I think that in wealthier countries, um, we can switch over to renewable energy as soon as possible. The other thing that we can do, because remember in the beginning, we talked about this idea that those who are least responsible uh, for human caused climate change are getting hit the hardest. Wealthy countries need to step up and provide funding to those countries so they can mitigate the damage. So those are just a couple of ideas on how we can help. Yeah, it all relates back to money in the, in the big bigger aspect of it, right? Um, just going off of the chat here, uh, could you uh, go more in depth about what is climate injustice and maybe pro provide a couple examples? Yeah, so um, when I think about um, what makes what makes the climate crisis unjust is um, centered around this idea that um, the polluters are receiving the, the least impactful results from climate change. So, I mean, if you want to give a, a numbers example, uh, for, for people in Zambia, 
their carbon footprints are like 0.36 tons per year per person. In Canada, any guesses what our what ours are as individuals? It'll be enough. <laughs> it's a lot. And in fact, I'm really sad to say Canada, we're like some of the worst emitters in the world. So so in Canada, we produce 14.2 tons per person per year. So again, in Zambia, it's 0.36. In Canada, it's 14.2, right? The latest data is t- um, telling us. But in Zambia last year, over a million people were in dire straits who needed food assistance because of the impacts of, of climate change. So again, that is a, a very concrete example of what we're talking about when we talk about in the injustice of climate change. The other one I would point out in terms of injustice is um, if you're standing in the path of a flood or a wildfire, and we're going to we're going to get more of those as the climate crisis intensifies. If you're rich, you have the money to escape to safety, to find temporary accommodations, and to rebuild. If you are poor or working poor, it's way harder to do that. And in fact, you often can't relocate to the place that you come from because you don't have the funds um, to do so. Here's one that applies to all of us in this room, uh, Zoom room, uh, in terms of climate injustice. So think about young people the young people in your classrooms today and the young people who will be in future classrooms. No voting power right now, right? So these folks and folks yet to come are gonna be the hardest hit by this, but they have no decision-making power, right? So when teachers or other adults use language like kids are our future, right? A lot of that happy talk in education and I too have said those things, um, we're kind of letting ourselves off the hook, right? Because those young young people who don't really have a say or don't have the positional power to make these kinds of structural changes that need to happen are going to be the most impacted by it. So that's another injustice for me that pertains to us uh, as, as, as educators. And then the last thing I would say is that our more than human relatives, um, so I think about the endangered piping um, plover, the burrowing owl, and the brown bat in Manitoba, they too can't make policy or law, right? And the things that we're doing that are exacerbating climate change are hurting those beings um, as well. So those are four examples of, of climate injustices as, as I see them. Yeah, no, that, that's so true because um, adults who are much older than this new generation, they wanna just uh, pass all the responsibilities down. They don't wanna, I don't necessarily, don't. I don't really wanna say they don't wanna help, but if you want to pass it down, at least set them up, you know, like give them something to work towards. Uh, that's why we should be starting this right now, right? Like Pauline, it's crazy. It's crazy. Um, just one more thing. I hate to go backwards, uh, but going on. I like going uh, backwards, sideways okay. and forwards. We're good. <laughs> Perfect. Um, just a quick one for you. Is the pandemic or the war in Ukraine impactful in the role of developed countries funding these initiatives? So, so when I think about um, the connection between climate justice and the conflict that everyone is paying such close att- attention to um, uh, in, in the war uh, in, in Ukraine, uh, it's this. Those folks uh, who are enmeshed in the fossil fuel industry who are buying from Putin are filling his war chest, right? 
So there's a very direct connection between the climate crisis and the war that's going on. And then the other thing that I would say as well, which maybe we don't talk as much about in schools, is that domination is at the root of all of this, right? The, the capacity of, of humans to dominate other humans is the same capacity um, that some people demonstrate for dominating uh, other animals, for example. So for me, the roots of that, um, those really unequal power relations and this desire to dominate others is kind of at the roots of what's happening in Ukraine and at the roots of the climate crisis for me. Yeah, and that, we'll throw it to Lauren. <laughs> I really, I never really thought of the dominance kind of affecting it so much, but that's a super good point. So our next question is, how does climate justice shape international negotiations? Yeah, that's um, that's a really expansive question. And I think it's, uh, but it's a really important one. So maybe it would help if I like gave a specific example of a negotiation. So um, so just a little bit of uh, boring background before I get to the to the nugget here. But in in 1992, way back then in the 1990s, um, the UN created uh, a it's the UN or so UNFCCC, the United Nations Framework on the Convention of Climate Change. So that was ratified by 160 96 countries and the European Union. And so the stated aim of those folks was uh, for them to figure out some cooperative strategies across the globe um, to lower greenhouse gas emissions. And every year, the UNFCCC meets at what's called at what's called the Conference of the Parties or COP. So you might have heard that the COP, COP26 was in Glasgow in and around the end of October and beginning of November. So at the last COP, COP26, what did those negotiations amount to? So, well, the world's largest and wealthiest economies, they didn't keep their commitments, first of all, to keep emissions to 1.5 degrees. Um, the second thing that was really disappointing is they had agreed in previous years at previous COPs to give $1 billion a year to developing countries who are being really hard hit um, by climate change. And that money has not materialized as of yet. And there was a climate activist from um, Uganda there and observing the proceedings as well. And when she reported back on her experiences um, at COP26, she said this, and this is stuck with me. I have this on a post-it note, like a, a little thing on my computer, because I want to look at it every day as fuel to, to, to keep my work going. And she, she said this, finance for the adaptation is critical, but for many of us in vulnerable countries, adapting to climate change is no longer enough. You cannot adapt to starvation. You cannot adapt to extinction. And you cannot adapt to lost culture and heritage, close quote. So to me, that sums up the awful ambivalence of wealthy, of wealthy nations, right? So Greta Thunberg has talked about that a lot. You're all talk, right? She said, blah, 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 in one of her um, uh, meetings with the press, right? As, a, as an activist, she said, like, it's, it's all talk and no action. 
So when you ask me about negotiations that go on on a global scale, we still see those um, dominating and and unhealthy power relations uh, between uh, those countries that have the most, and and I'm just talking about uh, capital here in this sense, and those countries who are struggling to make a go of it, even though they haven't really been, they haven't been the cause. Uh, of, of, of climate change. So that's one example. Yeah, that, that's just crazy to think about that, how they make all these promises and nothing's coming about of it, right? It's just mind-blowing. So to kind of shift focus kind of more on Canada, um, how socially just do you think the carbon tax is? That's another great question. Uh, so my understanding is that at, at its essence, at the level of the individual, um, if if you make something like driving a car more expensive, it's supposed to mean you'll do it less, right? And at a big picture systems level, um, if corporations are taxed on their emissions, it's supposed to incentivize them to be um, to emit less, right? And some folks um, resist the idea of the carbon tax because, the burdens, again, aren't shared equally. So the economic burdens kind of get pushed onto folks who are the least able to afford it. So if you are if you get a paycheck and you live really close to the line, right? So you have just enough to put gas in your car to get to work and you have just enough to put Cheerios on your table. If, if gas goes up in price, that might make you pretty ticked off because it doesn't fit in the budget, right? You can't, you can't draw money from, you know, you're stretched too thin. Um, But for another, so, but for me, like the two biggest issues I have um, with the carbon tax would be this, is that one, they can actually worsen existing inequalities because what they do is they can sometimes create what's called sacrifice zones. And what I mean by that is pollution from one area, one community is transferred to another community or from one country to another country. So, um, so a company might set up uh, their factory in a world in a part of the world where there's less environmental restrictions, or because they have relationships with the people in power and can set up a, a factory that's going to emit a ton of pollution. Right. Um, so that's an example of being transferring pollution from one area of the world um, to the other. And what does that mean, really, at its essence? Right. We're uh, we're we're sacrificing the health and the well-being of one community in order to pay for the fancy lifestyles of those who don't want to make any changes. And so that's that's the essence of what we mean when we talk about sacrifice zones. And so I worry about carbon taxes um, because of that. And then the other thing for me is that they, it becomes a bit of a shell game, like moving pockets of pollution around. and 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 it takes us away from thinking about like the hard work we need to do, which is to get off fossil fuels and, and move to renewable energy. And so for those two reasons, um, I'm not such a huge fan of the carbon tax. Yeah, no, th- those are very good points. Obviously, we've seen the effect of what uh, rate, uh, sorry, the raising of the gas prices have done to us. Right. Um, but I never I never thought about it as them just throwing a tax on it without thinking of the repercussions. You know, because like if you try to look at it from both sides of um, both sides, they're doing it to hopefully lower the emissions 
but like you said, it's affecting so much more than that. And that's just crazy to think about. Yeah. And I think sometimes big emitters, they like us to keep fighting about carbon taxes because it gets us away from doing the hard work of moving to renewable energy, right? right. So they get us all, they kind of dangle that shiny ball in front of us, you know, <laughs> keep working on this when really the work is um, much harder and, and deeper to do. And that's the work we need to be doing as, as in local communities and at a global scale as well. Right. And it all takes time. Um, actually going off of that, do you have like a guesstimate? If we were to start next week, how, how many years or do you think it would take us to achieve such a thing? Yeah. Wow. Well, one of the, the numbers or one of the years that, um, uh, that the IPCC has given us, like their benchmark is we gotta, we gotta get this done by 2030. You know, that's their, that's the year that they've given us boy, I hope we can get there. Um, you know, after the release of the latest report, the IPCC report, I have to tell you, I wasn't feeling so hopeful, you know, uh, on Tuesday morning. Uh, but then I look back at COP26 and there was a, a grand plan declared uh, to end deforestation. So that picked me up again, right? And then when I look at the artworks that those young people created in the Before I Go to Bed Tonight exhibition, and I see what hope they have and what powerful critiques they're making of the way we live and helping us to try to imagine a better way that we can live together. So it seems less far off to me, this pursuit of climate justice, right? I feel like there's so many people doing such incredible work on this that we are eventually going to get there. I sometimes, my, my friends and colleagues sometimes call me a little storm cloud because I often focus on you know, the things that you know, wake people up at night as it relates to education. But although it's probably true, I can be a little storm cloud because I worry about the climate crisis. Really, I'm radically hopeful. I'm radically hopeful that, that we can do some things together in our local communities, in our schools, um, and in the world that, that will make a significant difference. And like many other climate activists, every degree matters. So even if we don't keep it to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels, 1.8 is way better than 2.5. And so I'm going to keep working and, you know, um, as long and as hard as I can um, and, and keep the hope, right? Because every degree matters. Every action matters. Every choice we make matters. Yeah, that, that's so cool, especially that you've seen it firsthand uh, from the generation below you or above me, right? Like you've seen it firsthand that people, young people are trying to make a change um, and hopefully yeah. they will succeed, right? So it's, Yeah, and I think as teachers, one of the things we have to really be thinking about as people really wrestle with eco-anxiety, and that runs pretty deep with some of the young people um, that I've, I've talked to, is we also need to keep sharing climate stories of people who are making a tremendous difference, right? And we can create activities like you're doing in this class with this podcast of bringing people together to tell stories um, and to think creatively together uh, in ways that will make a significant difference. We can't turn away from the difficult knowledge of climate change. We have to face it together, but it's equally important uh, to make space, to imagine a better future, and then to create activities through how we teach and what we teach that will actually get us closer to climate justice.
Well said. That was really good. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. So for our last kind of topic we want to touch on, we want to talk about agriculture. And our closing question is, in what ways do you think that the effects of climate change on agriculture affect climate justice? This is a really important question, particularly a lot of our students at, at BU come from rural places and spaces. So I love that you pose this question. Um, I guess I would start with the idea that like, when we think about the four pillars of food security, which are availability, access, uh, utilization, and stability, um, climate change is wreaking havoc with those four pillars. And as the world warms, we're gonna have intensifying droughts and floods and wildfires. Um, the folks in St. Laurent, Manitoba last summer had a heck of a time feeding their cattle because of, of the drought, right? Um, so climate change isn't going to happen. It's, it's, it's here in Manitoba. And many of our farmers and farming families are on the front lines uh, of the climate crisis, actually. So, and, and the, the even trickier part is, is climate change is making agriculture more difficult. Agriculture is also some forms of agricultural practices are worsening climate change too. So it's a bit of a, a vicious circle. So about anywhere between 21-ish percent to 37 percent um, of our greenhouse gas emissions are attributed to the food system that we have, right? And so that means things like when we clear forested land, much of that is created um, as because of the demand to feed uh, like pasture land for cattle. And that is... Um, the same as in 600 million cars, the emissions from 600 million cars. So one of the things that we need to do, and this is a really difficult conversation to have in rural communities, is we, we're gonna have to change how our food systems work. We're going to have to think about eating less meat, which is a really hard thing to talk about um, uh, in some parts of our province. And, we're going to have to waste less food. So in Canada, we also waste about 79 kilograms of food each uh, a year. But these, again, are the kinds of things that we can talk be, can be talking about in our classrooms um, that connect for our students the links between agriculture, how we eat, and the climate crisis, right? So that we can live in a in a more just in a more just world. Yeah, no, uh, so true on all aspects. Um, I just got a job at a restaurant here in Brandon about a month ago, and the amount of food we waste is crazy, as well as the amount of food that people eating there and that they pay for waste is so sad. It's crazy. <laughs> um, all right. So because that's an, uh, all of our questions, we will open the floor to you, Alicia, if you have any questions for Lauren and I. Well, thank you for the opportunity to ask. This is my first time being participating in a podcast and then having this wonderful opportunity to ask the host questions. So <laughs> this is this is awesome. So I'm a teacher and you're becoming a teacher. And so I guess my one of my questions would be, why do you think it's important for, for teachers like yourself to be thinking about the climate crisis? Who wants to answer that? Lauren, do you want to give it a go? Or? I can go if you want. Okay. <laughs> um, I think it's important that we be aware of it and we be teaching our students that because I think they need to 
grow in their knowledge and maybe they'll find a passion for that. And that'll be something that they really want to focus on and really want to do. And I think it's just good to give our students all the tools to be successful and to make a change in the world. Right. And just bring more uh, awareness to it in general, because it's, it's affecting everyone, no matter where you are, no matter who you are, age doesn't matter. It is something that is affecting everyone right now. Yeah. And I really appreciate what you're saying about it, it affecting everyone, because there was this really amazing moment in one of the interviews I did with the research project where one of the students told me, you know, Alicia, um, we see all of this climate information, you know, coming through our social media feeds. And yet we're not really talking about it in classrooms. And so he described that as spooky. And I said, Oh, tell me more about that. And, and he said, like, it's weird. Like it's all happening, but we're not talking about it. So there's a spooky silence around it. And what, what I thought about after that conversation, that really compelling moment that kind of gave me pause in the interview was that if we don't talk about it because it is affecting everybody in classrooms, we become like emotionally illegible to our students, right? So it's a weird thing that your teachers, people who are significant adults in your life may not be taking it up with you um, when so much emotion is roiling around in your own body and yet you're not seeing the same worry or at least an articulation of it um, among your, your teachers and some of the other significant adults in your life. So I think you're... You're, you're absolutely right that it's important to talk about this with everybody because it is affecting everybody. Right. And that'll come down to us and our will to push the boundaries of the curriculum that we're given. <laughs> yeah, because students should be able to come to school and ask their own questions, <laughs> get their own and questions answered. Exactly. We're, we're the superiors there. We will be anyway. So we, we should have answers for them. All right. So that concludes all the questions we have for you and you for us. Uh, so thank you again for taking time out of your day to partake in our podcast and sharing your thoughts and opinions on this important matter. We really appreciate it. And thank you everyone for listening to our discussion on climate justice. We hope you enjoyed. Once again, we are your hosts, Maddie and Lauren. You've been listening to Leaning In and Speaking Out, a Research Connection podcast from Brandon University. For more episodes or to learn more about the BU Cares Research Centre, please visit our website at bucares.ca or you can come find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube or anywhere you get your podcasts.